All right. Welcome, everyone. How are we doing today? We are doing a Q&A. So I have some questions already lined up from people who have asked before. And I'll be taking some live questions on here today. So I'm aiming to do this for about, uh, say, about 20 to 30 minutes here. And for people who miss it, this will also be up on the Max Schmarzo podcast. So if you guys miss some of the questions, don't hear the answers or whatever, you can check it out there. Um, Spotify, Apple, all the fun places you can listen to podcasts. So first and foremost, one of the most common questions I get, and I've gotten this time and time again, and it's a little bit long-winded for that of just a simple answer on text. So I'll do start it here. And it's the purpose of periodization. So a lot of times people read books and they come across something like, periodization and mesocycles and microcycles and macrocycles and all these different forms of what's called periodization. And in the most simple terms, periodization is simply just a process through which you organize your own training. And it's so variable based on who you are, what you do, what window of opportunity you have to train, but it merely is a means of organization. A simple way to look at it is this. If I have a big pie chart of all the things I need to get done in order to achieve whatever goal I want to achieve, maybe for one person it's to improve their bench press, professional athlete, it might be something very specific to their sport, or heck, someone else, they just want to get 30 minutes of working out in four times a week. Periodization model allows you to organize those training goals um, in a way that makes it progressive. So A, you have organization in terms of you're progressing yourself over time. And secondly, it allows you to allocate your time based on your availability. So maybe on a Monday, you don't have as much time to lift heavy weights because you have a shorter time interval that you're allowed to work out for, for whatever reason, or you might have a sport practice coming up and you only can do certain aspects of your training before sport, because I don't know, if you go and lift heavy weights, you get tired. You don't want to be fatigued before you go and actually practice. Well, the periodization model allows you to organize your training within that framework. And so that's simply what it means. Now, the reason why it's confusing is because there's a lot of fancy words that don't really make much sense to most people who just commonly read it. Things like a microcycle, a mesocycle, a macrocycle. And all that is is organization within different time periods. So you might look at it, say, in one month or one week or one day or a whole training year. But that whole organization, um, or at least those titles of organization, micro, meso, and macro, don't really necessarily hold too much significance other than the, the allotment of time they represent. So for example, you might do a certain cycle that lasts four weeks, a certain cycle that lasts six weeks, maybe eight weeks. At the end of that cycle, it's a specific goal. And then you're kind of rolling these goals of these small cycles into a bigger goal to ultimately achieve a specific outcome. So again, it's nothing more than just organizing your training in a way that allows you to achieve what you're trying to accomplish. So that's kind of the first question I want to start off with. If you guys have questions, please feel free to ask. Again, we're doing this as a live Q&A. So we have one question that came in and it says, greetings from Lithuania. Thank you. Greetings to you too. How, uh, what do you think about implementation of linear speed, chain to direction, agility drills as potentiation phase of a warm-up prior to the main lifting session? So this is a great question, right? It's basically asking, look, before I go lift weights, can I add in linear speed, change of direction, more plyometric-like work before my main lifting session? And the answer is absolutely. I think, again, this fits totally right in with the periodization question. 
it's about organizing your training relative to the demands of your schedule. And so you might not have the ability to work out three times in a day. You might not be a professional athlete. You don't have huge allotments of time and that's totally fine. So you got to do what works best in your scenario, your situation. So when I program for uh, my training team or I'm working with athletes who have a, a limited amount of time, we might do our linear speed change of direction work at the beginning of our workout. Now in situations where you're doing a little bit of everything, so you might do some plyometric work, like your linear speed work. You might do some power work in the weight room. One thing you'd be really mindful of is how much time this is all taking. We can't just spend 30 minutes on change of direction and then go 40 minutes in the weight room. Now we're at 70 minutes and they have a sporting practice coming up and they're going to be really tired. So we might take a small chunk of those kind of three things, linear speed, change of direction, um, or even some plyometric form. And we might break it down over four or five training sessions. So I have a big pie chart of all the linear speed and change of direction stuff I want to do. I look at say, hmm, on these type of days, linear speed would fit in well with our lifting day on Monday because we're doing things that are similar muscle groups, you might say, or the warm up of running sprints is going to help facilitate our lifting session. I'm going to add some of our linear speed work in there. And instead of doing a really traditional linear speed day where you might do something that's a little bit longer and drawn out with larger rest periods in between, we might just do a small dosage of it, three sets of maybe six sets of say 15 yard accelerations, just an arbitrary number of stuff I'm picking right now. And you say, okay, I'm going to add those in because I know it's not going to be too tiring, too fatiguing. And we can add in maybe more top end speed work later in the week, but we're trying to accomplish what we can with what we have from a time standpoint. So I hope that makes sense in terms of uh, organizing your linear speed work because, or whatever it might be, your plyometrics before training, the two big key takeaways, because again, it's kind of a very, it depends kind of answer, right? But the two big takeaways which you can model your framework around are one, understanding how much time you have the rest of the week to accomplish these kind of tasks. And number two, what are you going to be doing after it? If you're adding stuff into a workout because you're already crunched for time, because you say, man, I got to get my linear speed working, getting my strength working, my power working. That's totally fine. We layer it in. Make sure you're not just putting in the whole uh, dosage of it because you're layering three separate dosages of that stimulus. And that's a lot of demand to place on the body. So being aware of that. All right. More questions here. Um, we have a couple that came in and we're going to answer these one at a time. Actually, we got a lot of these. So let's go through some of these. So someone's asking about, does a force velocity profile, the main predictor for uh, training decisions. So basically a force velocity profile or a load velocity profile, maybe an easier way to think about it. You assess your ability to move different weights of the same movement at different speeds. And in doing that, you can look at the relationship between how much weight you're lifting and how fast it's moving. And what's really cool about that, you kind of have three big takeaways. One, you can plot out all the speeds and all the weights, corresponding weights you lifted with it, and associate a speed with a percentage of your one rep max. So by doing that, you can now track progress of your speed relative to the weight being lifted as a means of improvement. So for example, I might have an athlete and we might lift, let's say they can do a one rep max of 600 pounds on a trap bar deadlift. Cool. Now I don't want to have them max out every single week to determine whether or not they're getting stronger. It would be cool to understand that, but it's very taxing to have to lift that every time. 
So instead, I might have them do something that's a lot lighter, say 445 pounds or 500 pounds, something that is still a weight that is somewhat associated with 600 pounds, that maximal strength. And I'll have them lift that and I'll track the velocity of that. And I know if the velocity of that is going up, they're moving it faster. That weight is becoming lighter relative to them. And therefore will be associated with a stronger one rep max at the end of the day. So does that factor really cool? It allows you to assess progress objectively without having to only assess maximal strength. And that makes assessing progress less invasive because a lot of times to assess your progress, you have to wait to the end of a training cycle to see if you've lifted more weight. And that's honestly totally fine for people who just are, um, that fits the schedule tool. Cool. I totally get it, but it doesn't give you the week to week or by, uh, you know, every couple of weeks, um, information as to how you're changing. But as the force velocity profile, you can dive a little bit deeper into it. You can look at say, Oh, what are the relationships between how much force I produce and say, um, I guess the speed of the movement, I should say, because the load velocity profile is a better term for that. The speed of the movement relative to the weight and certain ratios there. There are some ratios out there, like Carmelo Bosco did some research on it. And they are indicators possibly of maybe your strength levels relative to your explosiveness. They can be indirect measures of rate of force development to an extent, very roughly and the ability to produce high velocity movements against moderate and low to weights and essentially track your, for, again, I'm kind of working around the question, but track your speed strength is, is essentially the goal of it. Um, but no, it's not the end all be all. I would not say it's the pure indicator. It's merely one. The only thing that can be a pure indicator of performance is something that is a one-to-one -one with performance. And by no means, is a force velocity profile, a one-to-one -one relationship in your performance. You can assess numerous athletes, hundreds of them, and you can get an idea of their own relationships with force and load and all that fun stuff. But by no means is that going to be an isolated predictor of your performance. And so whenever we talk about performance outcomes, we really need to understand whether or not what we're looking at is causal it's going to directly cause a change in performance. Is it correlated or is the causal aspect of it just a small percentage of it? Hope that makes sense. So, um, okay, cool. Here's one right here. My favorite books about training. And hopefully this is helpful for some of y'all. Um, my, some of my favorite books, I have three books I really enjoy. And I've talked about this before, but I'll do it again. My favorite book is one of the two of them by Pavo Comey are awesome. The strength and power in sport and neuromuscular aspects of performance. And then Verkashansky has a wonderful book on programming organization, as well as fundamentals of special strength. And if you guys want to just read a book that is, uh, well, not necessarily related to strength and conditioning, I really enjoy two books. It's called Creative Confidence, I believe it's called. And the other one is The Lean Startup. So those are kind of six total books you can take away and hopefully will help you out. Um, I enjoy them quite a bit. And so maybe you might as well. All right, here's another question. What is the optimal fat percentage for athletes? Do you need to be as low as possible or is it fine if you're 11% instead of 7%? Whenever ever it comes to body um, fat percentage or um, anything with body composition, it's really important to understand how we track and assess progress to make these decisions. For myself, I have lost body fat percentage. I've gone down quite low before. And even though I might look better in the mirror with a lower body fat percentage, my performance actually drops quite a bit. I lose the ability to actually work out and sustain my workouts. 
I lose the ability to actually have high energy in my workouts. My total work capacity, so the amount of work I can do, decreases drastically. On that same side of it, yeah, I suppose if I were to just run and jump one time at a lower body weight, I guess that lower body weight, just based on physics, assuming I haven't lost any strength or whatever, would allow me to have one higher jump. Cool, right on. But you got to think about training beyond just a single output at a single time. You need to think about the accumulation of training stimuli, like the workouts you're actually doing. And when you think about chasing a certain body fat percentage, and it's a certain body fat percentage that doesn't allow, it's allow yourself to operate at the highest capacity possible, then you might be hindering long-term progress and gains. So for myself, I actually tend to have a more, I tend to have more energy, more output, more work capacity as a whole, when I'm not so concerned about being a super low body fat percentage. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that when you lose body fat, you go on some sort of a caloric deficit. And when you're at that body fat percentage, there is some biological variability that some people probably prefer a little bit higher, or a little bit lower based on their own predispositions. So that's kind of my two cents on it. It's being aware of it. I've been aware of my stuff, but when I've lost weight and sometimes when I lose my weight, I honestly lose a lot of performance. So, all right, we got some more questions coming in here. Um, let me see right here. Again, feel free to ask. Okay. One is about, oh, we got a couple coming in. Sorry if I missed a couple. What is an, your early, well, that's this one right here. What is your early phase strategy in terms of progressing for building ankle integrity, structure in the ankle while building capacity to handle multi-directional explosive plyos? So that's a, a large question. Um, I think it's asking pretty simply is how do you build up the ankle strength to handle plyometrics? And it's really dependent on your own ability. So what have you been doing? Some people who play lots of sports on the grass, they run around, they jump, they never stop moving, will have a higher starting point than someone who's just getting used to jumping and running for the first time in several years. And it's really important to be honest with yourself in regards to where you are at currently relative to where you want to be. Because if you just think about where you want to be and you try to mimic those activities, you're not respecting the capacity that those people have in those other structures. So when we run, jump, and sprint, the big difference between that and something like just lifting weights in the weight room is the fact that we're dealing with a ground impact. And that ground impact induces a rapid stretch on the muscles, a rapid loading on the whole tissues, all the tissues involved, not just your muscles, your bones, your tendons, your ligaments. Everything has to contract and brace itself appropriately. And you're practicing not just the muscular output, but the organization of that muscular output. So when you hit the ground, you do a change of direction left and right, front and back. Muscles are having to contract across the body to organize that. Much different than if you just do like a bicep curl where just one joint is working in isolation. So we got to think about three things. We think about one, what we have been doing. Number two, when we get started, what have you been doing previously? And what does our current workload look like relative to that? So that took your acute to chronic. Acute just means what you've been doing. Chronic means what you have been doing. And your acute, what you are doing relative to what you have been doing, shouldn't be so much higher that it causes excessive loading. Because when that happens, that gives you a predisposition to something like injuries and stuff. So when you have too high of acute to chronic. Lastly, it's understanding 
that when we are doing plyometrics, the loading kind of comes in three different forms, the surface that you are on, the effort you're doing them with, and the speed at which you're contacting the ground. Surface that you're on, you can think about grass, dirt, cement, basketball court. The more rigid the surface is, the less dispersion of force it's going to have, and the sharper ground reaction forces you're going to have, creating more load. Number two is your effort level. When you try and jump high, you're producing more force into the ground, and you have to deal with that force when you land. But on top of that, it does actually alter some of the muscle tendon unit dynamics. That is the speed at which that muscle is contracting. And as you think about a long ground contact time and trying not as hard, you have less total impulse, but when you have to try really hard and you have a shorter ground contact time, that's a larger impulse. Um, then thirdly, we want to think about the loading, the speed. So the again, the higher the speed we hit the ground with, typically the larger the stretch, the higher the velocity is upon contact, and the more load it places on the body. So those are three big things you really need to consider when you think about getting started with plyometrics. All right, we have a slew of questions pouring in. So I'm gonna answer a couple more of these here before we finish this up. Um, someone asked about using weighted vests in your plyometric training. I just wanna add that in relative to what I just answered. Now having a weighted vest may or may not be useful, but I have really found it to be useful only if it doesn't change the dynamics of the movement. So I use typically a much lighter weighted vest, like a three pound, a five pound vest. I love the vest from Hyperwear. That thing is absolutely awesome. It's form fitting. Um, it does not bounce around. It has a lot of arm movement. I know a lot of weighted vests I've used in the past bounce around a whole bunch. They don't feel good. Um, they actually can sometimes chew up your shoulders wherever the weight's being applied on. The Hyper vest was awesome for me. I loved it. Um, so that was a big, I was a big fan of that, but we have to use it cautiously. Even three pounds, five pounds, 10 pounds, that can be a lot of weight when we're talking about sprinting into movements. So we don't just want to think about the load itself, the weight, but also the speed at which we're doing those movements. All right, staples in a program, how to, honestly, I don't work a ton with top and speed athletes. I'll be the first to admit. So someone asked the question, by the way, staples in a program on how to progress in improving top and speed. There are a lot of experts out there who work with sprinters. I am not one of them. And so I'll be first to admit that I would actually reserve that question for someone who's more educated in top end sprint mechanics than myself. So I am not the uh, uh, super versed in that area. All right, we got time for about one more question here. I'm gonna uh, flip through these real quick as I go through them again. We had a lot of people ask a lot of questions. So if I didn't get to your question, I apologize. Uh, you might have submitted it onto the questions or in the comments, both they are present. I'm trying to go through them all. Um, let's see. All right, cool. So someone's asking about here. Uh, I like this one. I actually answered this one earlier, but I'll do it again. Um, not answer earlier in here, but in terms of my story, it's talking about shooting slumps. And so they asked about why does a shooting slump happen in sports? So basketball players, why do you go through phases where you might miss shots, make shots? You could talk about all the aspects involved. There might be some psychological aspects. There might be some natural deviation form, right? When you're shooting a basketball or doing anything at all in life, you're going to have a natural amount of variability. Some of that variability might cause makes and some of, those variability, some of that variability might cause misses. And so if you're shooting a basketball by nature, there is some level of variability. 
Now there's a thing in statistics called the regression to the mean. And so if you think about your variability in terms of, yes, I made it or no, I missed it. If you make a whole bunch in a row, you're not traditionally someone who's going to make a whole bunch in a row. You're probably predisposed to missing some in a row. So you're going to have what's called a regression to the mean. A regression to the mean simply means that while we might have some outlying performances here on one end of the bell curve and some outlying performances here on another end of the bell curve, on average, we sit on our average. And so if you have a period of time where you're shooting really well, it's not uncommon to have a period of time where you don't shoot as well. Now, what's really important though, because we are humans, we're ever changing, we're not just big statistical robots, that you can push that mean higher up and have a higher shooting percentage or a less shooting percentage. But I think it's something to understand and appreciate that while we might have slumps in shooting sometimes, you might have times where you make lots of shots in shooting. And it is hard to understand what is the specific reason why. There could be a confidence aspect because there's many things involved in your jump shot. There could be a physical aspect. There could be a mechanics aspect. But also at the end of the day, you have natural variability in your movement. And for some reason, sometimes that variability causes misses and sometimes it causes makes, but it's something that is natural to have, at least in terms of some type of a pattern, not pattern, but some type of, um, again, regression to the mean. So I appreciate the love of show in the comments. So thank you. I hope you guys enjoy these kind of topics. Hope you guys enjoyed the Instagram page. Again, I make this stuff for you all. Like I have a podcast that's out there, obviously that's free information. Uh, it's the Max Schmarzo podcast. We have some fun talking about random things. Um, then we have fun, obviously, on here uh, chatting about stuff as well. And so I'm trying to do more of these Instagram lives going forward, especially as I'm recording a podcast. It's pretty fun to have you all on here so you can check it out. And again, I'm, I think I'm going to end it there with my questions. I covered a good number of them. I don't have the opportunity to cover every single question. So again, I have the questions uh, tab open in my story. So if you guys have questions there, you're more than welcome to ask. And again, I appreciate y'all as always. Thank you for tuning in. Um, take care. Hope you enjoy and peace out.